Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Second Peter chapter three, as we're uh, closing in on the end of the book. And this morning we'll be looking at chapter three, verses fourteen through sixteen, and we're going to see Peter referencing Paul and bringing Paul into the mix of what he's uh, dealing with uh, in writing this letter. So 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'll start reading from the inspired Word of God in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless, and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of Scriptures to their own destruction. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So what we find in this uh, passage this morning is that Peter is now beginning to continue his exhortation to these uh, believers that they should uh, take heed to what he's been writing to them. And notice in verse, verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. And then these things that he's referring to in the immediate context, of course, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's all the glory that awaits them. It's just the incredible uh, future that we have, the glorious future that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see in this particular passage is that Peter is continuing his encouragement for the church to come to grips with this incredible, glorious future that awaits for them. That he has reminded them that when Christ comes, the ungodly will be judged. The present heavens and the earth will also be destroyed by fire. And it will be replaced with the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And in light of this incredible future that every child of God has waiting for them, then let them be diligent to be found by Christ when He comes in a atmosphere, a mental frame of mind of peace, being spotless and blameless, awaiting His return awaiting that eternal prize that Christ will bring to us. So we understand that the things of this world are passing away and that the godly seek their ultimate treasures in heaven and not on earth. They look forward to seeing Christ face to face and they look forward to the glorifying grace to be giving, given to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I hope that's what you're looking for today. Uh, Peter says this should describe believers. That we are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ 
We're looking forward to the treasure that we have in Christ and in glory and that this should motivate us to live a godly, holy life today. So if that is not what you're looking for in your life, then you need to pray for the Lord to help you to regain that far-sighted vision, if you will, and not be so focused on the near-sighted vision that our nature just inevitably leads us to focus on. Uh, Paul goes on to say, and I'm not seeing my slide here, uh, if there's any help from the back. All I've got is the last hymn up here. Thank you. But uh, Paul also reminds him in verse, excuse me, Peter reminds him in verse 15 to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So he's also wanting to, thank you, he's also wanting them to understand that one of the big accusations made against the second coming of Christ by the false teachers is that Christ is not coming. Because if He was coming, He would be back by now. And what Peter is emphasizing, no, the delay of our Lord in returning is for salvation. Okay? It's so that the elect, the full number of the elect, can ultimately be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why the Lord has, from our perspective, delayed His recoming. From His perspective, it's not a delay, it is from ours. But He is still saving sinners. And He will not return until all that the Father gave Him to save are saved. So this is now the time to prepare for eternity, for the church to prepare for eternity, but also to be faithful in our Gospel witness. This is what Peter mentioned back up in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So he mentions again in verse 15 that in regard to the patience of the Lord, Christ has not come back. That's because of salvation. There's more people that need to be saved. The word salvation, however, is broad enough to include our own sanctification. It gives us more time to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Peter says in Philippians chapter 2. Not work for our salvation, but to work out the salvation that we have already been graciously given through faith alone in Christ alone. So that's the emphasis at the beginning of verse 15. But then we pick it up in verse 15 when he says regarding the coming of the future events and the patience of our Lord being salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. So now Peter brings in Paul and he solicits Paul to come in as an ally to come in and to buttress what Peter has been writing to them about these teachings, that basically they are in total agreement with one another. So he says, the things I've written to you, the same things Paul has written to you. And we're in agreement. 
And what's so important about that is because the false teachers more than likely were saying that Paul agreed with them rather than the orthodox teaching of the church. They were probably claiming that Paul endorsed some of their teaching. For example, when Paul preached that we're not under the works of the law. While the false teacher said, see, we're not under the moral law of God anymore so we can live any way we want to. And so they were promoting this lifestyle of sensuality and licentiousness because they were claiming Paul's taught what we believe and we have this freedom in Christ so we can basically live any way we want to. Christ is not going to come back because Paul taught about a spiritual resurrection. And that's the only kind of resurrection there is. There's not a bodily resurrection. Paul clearly taught about a spiritual resurrection in Ephesians and in Romans. So there is no future bodily resurrection. And so they were taking Paul's letters and distorting them. Not only promoting sensuality and lawlessness, but also denying the future coming of Christ in the day of judgment. Now, in effect, what these false teachers are doing is they're playing into Satan's handbook, his playbook. Because Satan always wants to distort the Word of God. We see it all the way back when he appears in Genesis 3. His whole purpose is to exalt himself, demote God, and undermine the authority of Scripture by adding into it all these man-made ideas. So that's what Satan has always done. He's attacked and undermined the Word of God. And so the false teachers are distorting Paul's teachings and saying that they really align with what they believe. What Peter is saying is, no, wait a second. Paul and I agree. We're on the same team. And so he brings in the Apostle Paul as his backup to support the idea that what he is teaching has already been taught by the Apostle Paul. So let's begin to look at this relationship between Peter and Paul. We find in verse 15 that Peter refers to Paul as our beloved brother Paul. And these are words of great endearment. These are words of love and appreciation. Notice he says, our beloved brother Paul, our, all of the apostles, all of the churches I'm writing to, we all love Paul. We're all in agreement. He's our beloved brother. So it speaks to the unity of the body of Christ. He's our beloved brother. Brother Paul, we love Paul, is what Peter's saying. Here's a man that we love, we esteem, we appreciate, we thank God for. We love his ministry, we love the grace of God in his life, we love God for using him and raising him up, our beloved brother Paul. And then the word brother, I think in this particular verse speaks really more than uh, just the idea of just a, a brother in Christ. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you. 
So, a lot of times we can speak of other brothers in the body of Christ as being brothers. That's certainly used a lot of time in Scripture. But in this particular place, I think Peter has a higher implication to the word brother. As an apostle, Peter describes Paul as his brother. And I think there is embedded within here a sense of which Peter obviously acknowledges Paul as his fellow brother apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the word brother here is is uh, even far more than than fellow Christian or fellow preacher, but he he's my fellow apostle and he's your apostle as well. Uh, Peter knew and acknowledged that Paul had received the same supernatural commission directly given him by Christ Himself. He understood that. He knew that. He, had, he was well aware of the miraculous stamp of authenticity and authority that God had given uh, the Apostle Paul. He, they agreed in the Gospel that they preached to the world together. So he's acknowledging Paul was his co-worker for the Gospel. He's his partner Peter says, he's my equal, he's my brother in Christ. Now, Peter would not elevate himself over Paul. He, he looks at Paul basically as his equal. And I think that's what's being communicated when he refers to him as our beloved brother Paul. But then notice what he goes on to say about Paul's writings. That according to the wisdom well, before we jump into that, let me back up and say, this is an amazing comment that Peter's making here about Paul. Because you remember what happened earlier in their ministry lives together at Antioch. And I'll just... Uh, boy, I totally messed it up again. But if you go back up, to uh, to Galatians, for example, Galatians chapter two, and I'm going to turn there. I think it should be up. Okay, great. So in Galatians chapter two, remember what had happened between Peter and Paul. So Paul was at Antioch ministering, and Peter came up to Antioch to minister as well, and yet they run into this conflict. So Peter writes in Galatians 2.11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas, i.e. Peter, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So what? Peter or Cephas had fallen into the error of he was denying the truth of the Gospel. He was falling into a position of hypocrisy. 
Because he knew full well that in Christ there is neither Jew nor, nor Greek. We are all one in Christ. So he came up originally to the church at Antioch and he's eating with the Gentiles and he's eating with the Jews and there is good fellowship. But then these people from James came up and they had probably distorted some of the teachings of James, our Lord's half-brother back in Jerusalem. And these guys with a distorted, twisted message came up and started saying, look, these Gentiles, they're only really kind of like half-baked Christians because they're not circumcised. So they're, they don't have the full package. They're kind of second-class, back-of-the-bus kind of believers. And don't get too close to them because, you know, uh, they can still defile you because they're not really 100% Christian yet like we are, we Jewish believers. And Peter began to drink the Kool-Aid. And his attitude towards the Gentile believers began to be one where he was aloof. He began to withhold himself from fellowship. And the Apostle Paul had to rebuke him in public, in the church, with everyone else, listening and seeing this great apostle of the Lord being rebuked by the apostle Paul. So this is interesting about Peter. I mean, this is, this is the first, quote, Pope of the church. Uh, not only did he deny the Lord three times, not only did Jesus say, Satan, get behind me, but he's also guilty of hypocrisy. And it just shows we all have a sinful nature. We all struggle with these kinds of... Paul had his struggles as well. But what's so interesting, when Peter is writing this letter, he brings in Paul who had rebuked him and shamed him in front of the whole church, called him out on his hypocrisy, and Peter's writing, our beloved brother Paul. And what we see from this is something about Peter's character. He's not a sinless man. He doesn't need to be elevated other than he's an apostle. But that when he was publicly shamed and rebuked by another apostle because of his, his sin, his hypocrisy, nevertheless, however he responded then, I don't know, but by the time he's writing this letter, there is complete and total reconciliation there is no hard feeling towards Paul. Not the least hint that he held any kind of a grudge against Paul. And this is a mark of humility and godliness. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. But reprove a wise man and he will love you. And this is what we see in Peter. We see a glimpse into the humble character of his heart. He had been rebuked. And yet his response was to love the rebuker. Now I don't know when people point out things in your life. Maybe it's your husband, your wife, maybe your parents. Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe it's a friend. And they confront you on issues in your life. How, how do we respond when that happens? Well, I know how the flesh responds. 
the flesh goes into immediate combat mode. That no, 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 it's not my fault. You did this that provoked me. Or it's your fault. Or it's their fault. Or I'm innocent. I didn't do it. And we pass the buck and we respond with an eruption of the pride of our flesh. And that's not good. And we all do that at times. And I think what we see in Peter is the gracious way to respond when someone comes up and points out something against you, not to immediate lash out in self-defense. I think by nature we all have a black belt in self-defense. You know, because that's our first reaction. You come against me and you know I'm ready to duke it. But rather to listen to what they say, evaluate it, probably some if not all of it is true. And receive it humbly. Repent of any sin that's in your heart and life. Ask the Lord's forgiveness. Apologize to those whom you've offended. And seek to restore the peace. That's, I think, what we see in, in Peter's heart and life. He was guilty. He repented. But he didn't keep looking at Paul as kind of his enemy. Because Paul spoke the truth to him. He loved Paul. And we should thank God for when the Spirit of God leads someone to come and confront us and to speak truth into blind spots into our life. And we initially don't want to admit it or we don't want to agree with it. But thank God for the faithfulness of the Lord to deal with sin in our life. And that's what we see in Peter's life. And God used Paul to bring to Peter to expose his sin so that he could repent and get right back with God again. Nathan did that to David. And God continues to use people to sanctify His church through this ministry of rebuking and exposing our sin which we are blind to. So, what we see is that this is a really a wonderful description and and uh, of just really Peter's heart and his willingness to have such a loving attitude towards Peter in spite of their history together. May God give us that same humble, sweet spirit and not to despise those who speak against us, but to weigh it humbly and to thank God for when it exposes things in my life that I'm normally not so quick to acknowledge or see. God is using that for our good, for our sanctification. And He used it in Peter's life. And we see His gracious response to that. Well, back in verse 15, we find that uh, Peter describes Paul's writings as the wisdom given to him. And the wisdom here obviously is given to him by God. And Peter acknowledges that Paul was writing letters basically to the same churches. Because notice he says, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you the very same churches Peter is writing to. He's saying Paul wrote to you also. And he wrote the things that was given to him by God that are not according to human wisdom, but it's God-given wisdom. Paul is an apostle. 
He had a calling directly from Christ. He received revelations from Jesus Christ and from wisdom from the Holy Spirit. And you see that in his writings. And you have read some of his writings. So the wisdom would be gospel wisdom. It would be wisdom about sanctification. Wisdom about the future glory. Wisdom about the mystery of Christ. And he says in verse uh, 16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. So basically, Paul has written on things that Peter has written about. And basically what Peter is saying, look, we agree. He's written to you on these same things that I've written to you about. Don't listen to the false teachers that are distorting it, trying to drive a wedge between us. We agree 100%. And the wisdom that He has written to you agrees with what I'm writing to you. And so basically, He's bringing in Paul as reinforcements. Now, it's interesting in verse 16 when He says, and in all of His letters speaking in them of these things, kind of makes you wonder what letters had they received from the Apostle Paul. Well, we don't know for sure, but uh, there is a map that I have of the uh, areas that Peter is writing to. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says he's writing to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So those are the regions that first and second Peter are going out to all the churches in those areas. So what what letters do they have from Paul? Well, we know that in that general area they probably had a copy of Paul's letter to the Galatians. That's within that area. His letter to the Ephesians, his letters to Colossae, first and second Timothy that he wrote uh, to Timothy while he was at Ephesus. They probably had that. Philemon was a, probably lived in the, uh, city of Colossae, so they had that. But they probably had more of his letters because the letters back then were oftentimes circulated. So if Paul wrote a letter to the Romans or he wrote a letter to Corinth, it didn't just stay bottled up there for a hundred years. Because if other people found out that Paul, we know Paul, we've seen his miracles, we've heard the gospel, we've been saved. He wrote a letter to, we want that letter to Corinth, we want that letter to Rome, we want that letter to the Philippians and the Thessalonians, and they would get copies of it. So, probably nearly all of Paul's letters written at this time, they may very well have had access to. So when Peter says in verse 16, that Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him by God in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, that he's addressing the same things Peter is. Now notice what he goes on to say in verse 16, in which are some things hard to understand. And, and there probably ought to be a lot of amens because... Sometimes in Paul's writings, there are difficult, challenging passages to understand. We read earlier where even Jesus' own teachings were oftentimes hard to understand, even by His disciples. The passage that we read in the Gospel of John. So Peter is saying that in Paul's letters, some things are hard to understand. This is not a, a criticism 
He's not saying that all things are hard to understand because there's a a doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture that all the major basic teachings of the Bible are crystal clear. It's hard to distort them, though they can be distorted. But they're clear enough. But there are some things that are written that that there are differing interpretations of, which make them sometimes hard to understand. And obviously that is true in, in all of Scripture, just because when we read things, sometimes you can interpret words differently. You can understand what the verse is saying differently. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul had to correct a misunderstanding of a previous letter that he had written when he told the church not to associate with the immoral people. And their interpretation was, well, then we can't be around any unbelievers. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, no, that's not what I meant. You misunderstood me. So sometimes we naturally, because of our own dullness of mind, our own inability to uh, interpret things properly, we misunderstand what, what is actually being said. And so the Apostle Paul uh, wrote some things that were hard to understand. Peter wrote some things that are hard to understand. If you remember going through First and Second Peter, sometimes we're not exactly dogmatically sure what the interpretation is. But obviously this just comes with the territory of trying to interpret someone else's uh, words. Thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit who guides us into that truth. But uh, some of these things can be distorted. And sometimes Paul would be intentionally vague when the revelation given to him was intentionally vague. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, when Paul writes about the man of lawlessness and who it is or what it is that restrains him. Lots of different interpretations of what that means. So some things are hard to understand. But what Peter is acknowledging is that he doesn't disagree with any of what Paul wrote. In fact, he says it's only distorted by those who are untaught and unstable. But Peter is in 100% agreement with what Paul taught. He's totally in agreement. And uh, the things that they had received from Paul, Paul and Peter are saying exactly the same thing. However, there are the false teachers that are distorting it. And Peter refers to them and their followers as the untaught and unstable who distort it. It's interesting, this word for distort is a word that carries the idea of twisting and wrenching and torturing something. It was actually used of putting someone on the on the rack and stretching them out where you tie their hands and their feet and you stretch them out and you you distort their body you lengthen it and it's that type of attitude that they bring to the scriptures when they don't like something in the bible they torture it they uproot it out of its context. They dig it up. And then they put it on the rack and they stretch it and they twist it until they claim it says what they want it to say. And that's what these false teachers were doing. 
That's why they were promoting sensuality within the church. That's why they were denying the second coming. They were torturing the Word of God. It doesn't say that, but they have twisted it to claim that that's what it's teaching. So the antinomian error, the libertinism error that justified their immorality, all this was a result of Scripture twisting. But Peter affirms that Paul is on his side on all of these issues. That they are a band of brothers. They're at war together, fighting for God's truth against the lies of the false teachers. That they have locked arms together to resist the distortions of the false teachers. They are the untaught ones. They are the ones following the doctrines of demons. By calling them untaught, He's not saying that they're ignorant in the sense they have a low IQ or something like that, but they're untaught in the sense of being willfully ignorant. They have read the letters, they've heard the teaching, but they reject it. So they are willfully untaught in that regard. They're like the blind guides of the blind that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. So the problem is not with due to Paul's faulty manner of writing, but to their faulty manner of reading. That was the problem. And they're also unstable in verse 16. They're prone to not being rooted and grounded and founded upon the truth of Scripture. They're prone to be tossed here and there by every wind and wave. Uh, They're prone to novelty in their interpretations. They lack the spiritual stability to ground them in the Gospel and ground them in the truth. Now notice that Peter does not say that because some things of Paul are hard to understand, therefore don't read his letters. That was sadly the attitude of the Roman Catholic Church for centuries. Well, we don't want the unwashed humanity to read the Bible because they may misinterpret and distort it, so that's only for the priest to read and interpret, and you just have to believe us. That's not what Peter says at all. In fact, he is exhorting them often to read the Word of God. Remember back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So he's not saying don't read his letters. Read them. Just understand them correctly. By the way, one of the greatest things you can do as a believer is to read the Word of God. And I think every believer ought to discipline themselves to be regularly reading God's Word. More than commentaries, more than devotionals, read the Word of God. It's the inspired Word of God that we have. And that should have our highest priority in our life. Then notice as we read on in verse 16, Peter says that not only do these false teachers, these untaught and unstable people, not only did they distort Paul's letters, but they also distort the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Now this is interesting. Because Peter is now calling Paul's letters Scripture. They have distorted Paul's letters just like they distort the rest of 
Scripture. Now your translation may say other Scriptures. And the word other there in the Greek is the word that indicates it's the same kind of Scripture as you have in the Old Testament is the idea. The word Scripture occurs 50 times in the New Testament where it consistently refers to the inspired and errant Scriptures of the Old Testament. So what Peter is saying is that Paul's letters that you have received also are being distorted by these false teachers just as they distort the other Scriptures, i.e. the Old Testament. So what Peter is acknowledging is that Paul's letters were on the same level with Scripture. And this is really kind of an amazing uh, admission because the early church, when they received these letters from the apostles, they just didn't receive a letter and think, well, isn't that nice? It's always fun to get mail. So we got a letter from Paul or Peter and then they read it and then they go stick it on the shelf. They understand that these are men of God that the Holy Spirit is using to communicate truth that is Scripture. It is inspired by God. It is authoritative. And that the letters of the Apostle Paul, according to Peter, are on the same level of Scripture with the Old Testament. What's interesting about this reference from Peter is that we see that early on, uh, the uh, early church began to identify and acknowledge <clears throat> some of these New Testament books that were written by apostles or their delegates or those who were kind of under their authority as being equal with Scripture. So it's really the, the beginnings of the New Testament canon of Scripture. And, uh, and so what Peter is acknowledging that even in the first century, even while these apostles were alive, that their letters were being looked upon as being inspired by Almighty God. And so even though the, the canon, the full canon, gradually has its development, we see even in the New Testament, the beginning seeds of the acknowledgement that this letter written by this man is equal with the Old Testament. It's the inspired Word of God. It's Holy Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is testifying to His divine authority and His divine inspiration of these letters so that the church was recognizing them as being inspired by God. And so Peter is acknowledging that Paul's letters are in fact, they meet that criteria. Now, it's a, so, so we have the beginnings of the New Testament canon, the authority of really the, the inspiration of the New Testament, all the books of the New Testament that we have. The 27 New Testament books. And you began to see this developing even within the New Testament. So let me just kind of briefly, quickly walk through some of the other references where someone in the Bible is alluding to or indicating that these writings are going to be inspired by God in Scripture. So all the way back in John chapter 14, verse 26, 
Christ claims that the Holy Spirit is going to inspire His disciples in what they write. So in John 14.26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So Jesus is already saying that His disciples were going to receive this truth just as Jesus taught it, help them to remember it, teach them what it means, which implies that when they wrote these things out, it would be equal to the authority of Christ's own words. Because the Holy Spirit would enable them to remember it, to teach it, and to communicate it. So it's going to be inspired by Jesus Himself through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Peter claims that the apostles' words, the other apostles, were equal to the Lord's words. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So that gives apostolic authority. That the apostles were going to speak the words, the commandments that came directly from Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So again, Peter is saying these other apostles, they're going to give you the Word of Christ, which is obviously inspired, authoritative, and inerrant. Number three, Paul, uh, his assessment of Luke's writings is interesting. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. That comes from Deuteronomy. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, that phrase was spoken by Jesus, written down by Luke in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So what Paul is acknowledging as Scripture is the writings of Luke. At least his Gospel, because that's where he quotes Jesus making this statement. So again, it's interesting how you find different people referring to other people's writings as Scripture. You also, number four, Luke's assessment of Peter, Paul, and other early church leaders' ministry. Luke is writing Acts and he says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. So he's acknowledging that when Peter spoke at times, he spoke being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 13, verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Spirit of God is setting apart Barnabas and Saul for the work. And that work is going to include writing letters and ultimately, that's coming from the Holy Spirit. Number five, Paul says that all of the New Testament apostles and prophets are the authoritative doctrinal foundation for the church, Christ Himself being the cornerstone. So in Ephesians 2.19, Paul writes of the church in verse 20 that they've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ being the cornerstone. 
And that foundation is laid by the writings, the teachings, the doctrine, the theology of the apostles and the prophets of Jesus Christ. So again, it speaks of authority. It speaks of inspiration. And I think uh, Paul is acknowledging that for the other apostles and their writings as well. Number six, Paul's assertion about the inspiration of his own ministry. 1 Corinthians 2.10, he says, For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. So Paul is convinced that the things he's writing about were revealed to him, given to him by the Holy Spirit. So he's convinced that his teaching comes directly from the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, he says, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And in 1 Corinthians 14.37, he says, the things I write to you are the Lord's commandment. So Paul is absolutely convinced that the things he was writing, the letters he was writing to the churches, was the Lord's commandment. Which means it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative. He also indicated that in Galatians when he says that the things that I have preached to you I received not according to man for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Gospel, the teachings, the doctrine, the theology that Paul taught he says I didn't get it from men I got it directly, a revelation from Jesus Christ. Inspired, authoritative. He also says to the Thessalonians that when we preach to you, you didn't receive our message as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. We preach to you the Word of God. And you received it as such. Number seven, the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, says that God spoke through the Old Testament prophets and in His days has spoken in His Son and through His apostles who bore witness to their authority by the miracles that they performed. So we read, particularly in chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through our Lord. So we got So it was first spoken by the Lord And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard, that would be the apostles, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So he understands that what the apostles were preaching came directly from Jesus Christ. It's authoritative. It's inspired. And God confirmed that with these miracles. How about Jude? Jude comments about Peter's writings in Jude 17 and 18. He says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you in the last times there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. So Jude is quoting 2 Peter. And he's saying this was spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude acknowledges Peter as an apostle and acknowledges that what he wrote 
was consistent and authoritative and it came from the Lord Jesus Christ. An angel called John, a prophet, Revelation 22.9. The angel said to me, John is speaking, writing, do not do that. Don't fall down and worship me. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book worship God. So here's an angel calling Peter, his brethren who are the prophets. That would make Peter a prophet also. So here's an angel of God saying Peter is among the prophets. So he has God's stamp of authority, authenticity, power, inspiration in that ministry. And then finally, in Luke 22, that's what Peter acknowledges, I'm sorry, what John acknowledges about the book of Revelation that he has written. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life. So John is saying, this book that I've written to you is prophecy. Inspired by God, authoritative Scripture. So, I just point this out to belabor the point, uh, maybe more than necessary, that the New Testament canon is already being formed and people acknowledged the writings of other apostles as being on the level with Scripture. And this was in the first century. Now, eventually over time, uh, as the church continued to receive more and more of these letters, read them and come under the influence of them and being persuaded that this is inspired by God, the consensus began to grow throughout Christendom. Skeptics of the Bible want to undermine the Bible by saying, you know, the canon that you Christians have, your New Testament, it wasn't even put together till like the 4th century A.D. in some of the early church councils. And then a bunch of elitists, a bunch of these Christian leaders just got in a closed room. They said, this book is in, this one's out, this one's in, this one's out. And they just came up with the canon on their own. So you really can't trust it. It's an invention of the church. And this is totally false. As you can see in some of the verses that we've looked at, they began to identify letters and writings of the apostles and their understudies, Luke being one, as being on the level with Scripture. So it wasn't just a bunch of guys in a church council in the 4th century that came up with this decision of what books they thought should be in the, in the canon. No, they were just merely acknowledging what the church had been saying for, for centuries. And acknowledging for centuries was the inspired Word of God. I like what J.I. Packer said. He said, the church no more gave us the New Testament canon, i.e. in these church councils, then Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. Sir Isaac Newton just merely discovered it and acknowledged it. But God created it. And in the same way, the canon is created by God. 
It's the Holy Spirit that put that inner conviction in the hearts of God's people to acknowledge and recognize the letters that the Holy Spirit ultimately authored. So the canon is not a determination from men. It's, it comes ultimately from God. So the early church councils didn't create the canon. They simply were part of the process of recognizing a canon that had already been there. The New Testament canon was not determined by a vote or by a council, but by a widespread ancient consensus of the church that began right when the letters were written. And all these different people are acknowledging that His his writings are Scripture and His writings are Scripture. And you have that from the first century going forward. So gradually the church, as they circulated the 27 New Testament letters, eventually they were all acknowledged as being inspired. Treasure your Bibles, beloved. Read them. Meditate upon them. Because they are precious. They're the foundation of the doctrinal beliefs that hold us together upon which we build that God has granted to us. And in closing, one final word. Just to comment again about the relationship between Peter and Paul. I think if there is anything that could ruin a relationship and create animosity and bitterness is when someone rebukes us for our sin. But again, it's the humility of the Apostle Peter who loved this man, even though Peter was in the wrong and Paul in this situation was in the right. But once he received the rebuke, he loved it because he knew that it came from God. It was necessary for his sanctification to deal with pockets of sin. And he was rejoicing and thanking God and loved Paul for rebuking him for his sin. And again, may God give us that tender humility uh, when people come against us that we might humbly receive it, thank God for it, evaluate it, repent and respond in a way that would honor God and show that our hearts are in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. So may God help us with that. Well, let's close our time in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You, Lord, uh, that we can listen in to this incredible letter that Peter wrote and just get a bit of an insight into just the godliness of these great apostles. These men who were not sinless. They were not perfect. But they were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And that they loved one another. And that the, the ministry of them to each other was vital for the health of the church and the promotion of the true Gospel. Lord, we thank You that You have entrusted into our care the precious gift of Scripture. And all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That the man of God may be equipped and able to accomplish every good work. And Lord, there's not a one of us in this room here this morning 
that doesn't need that fourfold ministry of Scripture in our lives every day. So Lord, give us a love for Christ and a love for His Word and give us the discipline to meditate, to read it, to delight in it, that we might be transformed to be more like our Savior as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us more into men and women of God. Lord, help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.